Folks, just while the, the boys and girls are heading out, we could be flicking up our reading for today. Luke chapter 8, page 1037. We're going to read just a, a very short passage initially, um, verses 22 to 25. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got in a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down in the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. This is the word of God. Folks, keep that uh, open before you. In fact, keep the whole of Luke 8 open before you. Last week, we tried to do a 50-verse chapter in 25 minutes. So how do you follow that? Well, you try to do a 56-verse chapter in 20 minutes, so that's us today, so we'll have to go um, pretty quickly. Who is this? It's a question at the heart of the second half of Luke chapter 8, which I'm going to use as a hook for everything that's going on in, in that second half of the chapter. Verse 25, this short account, Jesus calms the storm And in fear and amazement, the disciples are asking one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Big question in the second half of Luke chapter 8. It's been a big question right throughout the opening chapters of Luke's gospel. This is the third time that that question has been asked. Uh, So in chapter 5, You have the Pharisees asking the question whenever Jesus heals the paralyzed man and also claims to forgive his sin. We had it last week. I don't know if you remember that. In the passage, we were looking at Jesus with the the prostitute in the house of Simon the Pharisee. The question comes up again, who is this who can talk about forgiving sins? So it's a big question in Luke's gospel. And it is in the other gospels because it really matters. It, it really does matter who Jesus Christ is. You see, getting a person's identity right is important. I can still remember being on holiday one time with Claire's family, just a few weeks after we had started going out together. Um, and I was walking along and chatting with Claire's mum. It's the first occasion that I'd really spent any extended period of time with them. So it's that moment where they're trying to work out who this guy is and uh, what damage he's going to do to their family. But anyway, I was walking along chatting to Claire's mum and I called her Margaret. Now that would be fine if her name was Margaret. (laughs) But it's not. 
Her name's Jennifer. <laughs> Margaret was the name of my previous girlfriend. And Jennifer knows this. So it wasn't a good moment. It's important that you get identity of people right. If you don't know who a person is that you're dealing with, you won't ever deal with them in the right way. It's of fundamental importance to get the identity of Jesus Christ right if we're going to relate to him in the right way. So that's why the gospel writers make this a big deal. They, the, the feeling I get, and we don't get this very well because we, we think we know who Jesus is. We read the gospels backwards. We say, oh yeah, Jesus is God, and we start reading that way. That's not how the gospels work. They start with a kid being born and stuff happening, and nobody knows who he is. That's why people are asking all the time, who is this? Who is this? I think it's actually more interesting to try and read it forwards like that and to allow the stories to be a wee bit fresh and open-ended for us again. So it seems to me that that's what Luke is doing. He's given us chunks of evidence to help us build up a picture of the identity of Jesus Christ. I'm going to imagine today they're a little bit like pieces of a jigsaw. And it's not until we gather them all up and put them all side by side that we we begin to be persuaded and get a comprehensive picture. So I want to look quickly this morning at the second half of Luke 8, because I think there are three pieces of the Jesus jigsaw, even in this half chapter. So we've already seen the first piece of the Jesus jigsaw in the short passage we read a moment ago. Who is Jesus? Well, he's somebody special. If we just dropped into Luke's gospel at this point, we'd be saying, Flip, well, that's, that's quite something. He's just calmed a storm. So he has power over nature. Let's say that. And there are other places in the gospels where that same power over nature is demonstrated. So when he walks on water or when he heals 5,000 people out of one lunchbox, those are demonstrations of Jesus' power over nature. We're moving very quickly today. So a second piece of the jigsaw in verses 26 to 39. We're told of a time there when Jesus exercises a demon. Uh, He restores a tormented man to his right mind. We've seen that before a number of times in Luke's gospel. Jesus healing either physical or mental illness. The thing that intrigues me about this, I was thinking, well, nowadays doctors tend to specialize, don't they? They have a specialism. One's the eye guy, one's the skin guy, one's the heart guy. Jesus works across all the specialisms. He is able to deal with demon possession, leprosy, fevers, paralysis, shriveled hands. Those are just some of the the issues we've already seen in Luke's gospel. So the best way to summarize this, I think, is to say that Jesus has power to heal. Second piece of the Jesus jigsaw. There's nothing ordinary about those first two pieces, uh, but it's about to get a whole lot more staggering. So as we get to the end of Luke chapter 8, verses 40 to 56, Luke tells us about a day when Jesus heals a woman who's been hemorrhaging for 12 years. Changed her life, just like that. 12 years of suffering brought to an end. But he does that on his way to doing an even greater thing where he calls a young girl off her deathbed. Jesus Christ has power over death. 
Who is this? So Luke has loaded three pieces of the Jesus jigsaw just into this one half chapter. But they aren't the only pieces of the Jesus jigsaw in the Gospel of Luke. He's placed them carefully throughout all of those chapters we've read so far. Do you remember, we've come across this so often, but I don't want to miss it here. His power to teach. The number of times that Luke has told us that Jesus taught, so he tells us that Jesus does teach. Sometimes he records the content of his teaching for us, and then he, he, he often records the response of the people, and the response is always, wow. We have never, ever heard teaching like this. Amazing as all of these actions were, these weren't the things that were controversial about Jesus. There was one last thing about Jesus that was controversial that got him into trouble. He claimed it with the paralytic, and he claimed it last week in the passage we looked at with the the prostitute in Simon's house. Jesus repeatedly claimed that he had power over sin. Whenever we put all of these pieces of the Jesus jigsaw together, we're, we're presented with quite a staggering personal profile. A person who can teach like Einstein, who can heal across the healthcare specialisms, controls nature just with a word, raises people from the dead, and can even reach inside into the depths of a heart and say that the the guilt that you carry is forgiven. Jesus Christ is nothing ordinary. He's no one ordinary. He's come from out of this world. He's come from an entirely other place. He's got to be and can only be God among us. Jesus and the gospel writers are all unanimous about this. They're entirely persuaded about the identity of Jesus Christ. He is God. Folks, if that's true, if we've got the identity question right, then we're back to that that second related question. Once I know who a person is, then I know how to relate to them, how to deal with them. Well, how do we relate to Jesus Christ? What's the right way to respond to God when he comes among us? The sections are marked in our NIV Bible as the parable of the sower, the lamp on a stand, and Jesus' mother and brothers. I remember looking at this thinking, flip, looks like three totally unrelated pieces. How how can I bring those together in a in a relatively succinct way, which is what I'm trying to do today. And then as I looked, I discovered they're not three unrelated pieces. They, they look different, but the common thread and theme is very strong. And actually, taken together, they answer the question uh, which the, the second half uh, of the chapter has raised for us. That question, if we know who Jesus Christ is, There's still that question hanging, how do we respond to him when he comes among us? How do we respond to Jesus? These first 20 
first 21 verses of Luke 8 give us a clear and unmistakable answer to that question. If Jesus is God, we listen up. Look for a second at the lamp on the stand, verses 16 to 18. Jesus tells one of his pithy wee stories. He says, if there's a power cut in your house, you don't go and hide all your your torches away and leave everybody stumbling around in the dark. He's making the point that when we have the truth of Jesus, we don't hide it from a, a dark world that so desperately needs to see its light shine. We should bring it into the open. We should keep it in the open before others. But look at what he says in verse 18. Therefore, consider carefully how you listen. He's saying, because of who I am, because I'm one of the ones, the one who ultimately brings the truth to light, because of who I am, it's absolutely crucial that you listen to me. Listen up, says Jesus. Look at that other short section, verses 19 to 22. Luke tells us about an incident where Jesus is teaching. Uh, there's a big crowd around him, as there so often was, and his mum and his brothers show up, and they want to talk to him. They want to interrupt him. So somebody comes in and says, Jesus, your mum and your brothers are outside. And... Look at what Jesus says, verse 21. My mother and my brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. It sounds a lot like a public snub to me. It'd be interesting to be at the dinner table next time Jesus is home for Sunday lunch. What's a mother and what are brothers to make of that? What's Jesus saying? Is he saying here, I don't care about my mom and my brothers. I've disowned them. I've moved on. I'm getting on with my ministry. Watch how rude I can be to my mom. I don't think so. In this moment, Jesus Christ is redefining family for us. His primary family or community isn't his biological family. Where Mary's his mother, where Joseph is the father to his brothers and his sisters, Jesus' primary family is the one where people gather around his heavenly father. His siblings are those who do the things that the father loves who are becoming more and more like the Father in the family likeness. Mary's not excluded, and neither is any of Jesus' siblings. James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, they can all be part of it, and so can Jesus' sisters. Anyone can be part of this family if they hear God's word and put it into practice. There's a second time. Jesus tells us the same thing. Listen up. Hear my word. Put it into practice. 
And now that we've effectively reversed our way through the whole of Luke chapter 8, we arrive at the start of the chapter. Don't always teach this way. If you're a guest with us today, sometimes we get things in the right order. Today we've reversed right through this chapter, and we're back at the best-known part, what the NIV calls the parable of the sower. That's what the NIV calls it. That's how we tend to refer to it. But it's not what it's about. It's not the parable of the sower. This parable isn't really about the sower. We're told in uh, verse 5 that a farmer goes out and he sows his seed, but we don't hear anything more about the farmer for the rest of the chapter. He doesn't seem to be where the spotlight's falling. So if it's not about the sower, who, who or what is it about? Well, the seed gets a mention here. The farmer sows his seed. Jesus actually tells us what the seed is. He tells us in verse 11 that the seed is the word of God. So that helps a lot. The seed in Jesus' story is God's word. By implication, I think the farmer is the person who shares God's word. In this case, it's Jesus who's doing the sowing. But it might be a preacher like Richie or I. Or it might be God himself by his spirit just bringing his word into our lives. So the seed's very important in Jesus' parable. It's the the word of God, the thing that God wants to say to us. But even it's not the focus. It's not the sower and it's not the seed. What's this about? The spotlight in this story is on the ground where the seed falls. Parables should be called the parable of the soils because that's where the focus is. It's all about what happens when the farmer sows his seed and it lands on different types of of soil. Jesus uses these types of soil as a metaphor for the different states of our hearts. Because not everybody who hears even the same teaching hears it in the same way. This is all about the response that the word gets. Very quickly, some of our hearts are like tarmac. You sow new grass seed in your garden. The stuff that falls on the paving stones or on the tarmac goes nowhere. Doesn't matter what's read from God's word. Doesn't matter what the the preacher tries to, to highlight or to draw attention to in that passage. We're not listening. It's not getting in. Jesus says something interesting, and, and if you're a person who maybe feels a little bit like that, this is quite salutary. Look at verse 13. Jesus involves another character in this hardness of heart. He says that the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they might not believe and be saved. There are maybe reasons why your heart is hard. Folks, there are tarmac types in our congregation here this morning. We're, we're here today, some of us. We're like Simon the Pharisee, whom we thought about last week. There's no, there's no love for Jesus, no softness or tenderness. Until God comes with, the only image I have in my head is, you know that, those road drills? 
that you break up concrete and break up tarmac with, until God comes with his road drill and breaks up my life, the seeds go nowhere. I hear nothing and I do nothing with it. The word won't take root. Some of our lives, secondly, are like, are like rocky ground. So a well-directed seed, a radical thought from God's word, will land on the right square inch of our lives and, and take root occasionally. But because the ground's rocky and because it's, it's shallow, there's no room to put down real roots. So the green, the green shoots of growth that we see, maybe quite often, never last, never never mature into something. So we've got rocky ground hearts here today. Some of us love hearing, hearing the word. We're enthused by it quite often. We love the odd thing from God's word. And here and there it shows green shoots in our lives. But the truth is, we've never prioritized God's word. We've never decided to make space for it in our lives, for it to to really go deep and to do its work. Until God comes with, I'm not much into gardening, would that be a rotavator? Yeah? Break up the rocks, throw them to the surface and lift them out. Until God rotivates our lives and leaves the, the soft, rich soil, his word never goes deep, never transforms. Some of our hearts are like thorny ground, Jesus says. They're soft and the seeds welcome and it soon takes root and it grows. The word has no problem growing here. The trouble is everything grows here. These other things that grow here choke the gospel seedling when it's taken root. For some of it, it's our worries that dominate our, our horizons. They control our hearts. They so hold our attention that God's word has no space. For others, it's our wealth or our dreams of a wealthy lifestyle. That's where our hearts go every time they get a moment. That's where they fly off to. For some of us, it's simply living for the moment. We're so committed to living life to the max grabbing every experience for self-actualization that comes our way, that's far more important to us than maturing as men and women of God. The word simply gets crowded out of thorny lives. There's a fourth type of soil. Read with me, verse 15. The seed on the good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, return it, and by persevering grow a crop. Isn't that just lovely? Not like tarmac. They do hear the word. They're not like the thorny and rocky ground because they, they do retain it. And they persevere with God's word and God's word grows a crop in their lives. It's a beautiful picture. We're out of time for this morning and we've dealt really quite quickly with a long chapter from Luke's gospel. 
we've been drawn again to Jesus' identity. It's starting to, to become very clear to us as we read together in Luke's gospel. He's God among us. And we've seen a second thing, that if that's true, the only right response is to listen to him. To listen up to what he does, or what he says, and to do it. I thought I'd finish with a few simple suggestions for how we might demonstrate uh, what's called a noble and a good heart here. I love the idea of having a noble heart. It's not how I think of myself. But here's an invitation to have a noble and a good heart. Hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, grow a crop. How do you hear the word? Well, in all sorts of ways. We've done it here today in community. We've come here and we've gathered as Jesus' first family, his brothers and sisters who want to hear the word of his Father and who want to obey it. Let's keep coming. You've probably gathered by now that we teach in series. Most of our Bible teaching here happens in in series. And you might also have noticed that when you come and you hear one part of the series after the next, after the next, there's a cumulative work that God's Word does in your life. Well, don't miss that. Come when you can, every time that you can, and hear the Word. The more we get of the Word, the more we get the Word. Don't miss the next episode. Keep coming. Listen up. How do you retain the Word? We've talked about how you hear it, and that's one way is gathering like this in community. How do you retain the Word? Well, again, there are all sorts of ways. One of the best ways we know as a church family is to say, well, let's get together. Let's talk about what we've been learning and let's pray, pray it into our lives. That's what we do in what we call our discipleship groups. If you're somebody who comes to church on a Sunday and hears a sermon, there's every chance that's the last you'll think about it. It just seems to be the way life works. And that's why we prioritize moments where we invite people to get back together and talk about that again. People are going to be meeting in groups on Wednesday night and they're going to be talking about which of the the heart states most or best reflects where they're at at the moment. And then they're going to pray for each other because they want to retain the word and they want to let it work in their lives. Read it for yourself. Read the word for yourself. Get into a Bible reading plan on your phone. If you've got a Bible app, there's hundreds of choices of Bible reading plans that you can be on. You could join us after Easter. We're going to offer a thing called the Community Bible Experience. We're going to invite people to read the New Testament together over a period of 10 weeks and discuss it in a sort of a book group format. You could think about that. I don't have time today to talk about all the ways in which we can hear 
retain and persevere in the word. But we are going to take some time just now to pray. We're going to do what we always do here, and that is pray for others, but but we're going to pray for ourselves first. I'll do the praying for others. We're all going to pray for ourselves. I'm going to invite you to pray with me for the state of your heart. I'm going to put three questions up on the screen that will prompt our thinking. And I'm going to give us three minutes of silent prayer. And then I'll close with some short prayers for others. So there are three questions. Which soil do you identify most with? Which soil type? Tell God. Don't tell anybody else. Don't have to. Just tell him. Which treatment does your heart need? Does it need the road drill? The rotavator? Does it need the weed ox? I made that up. I can't think of a weed killer off the top of my head. What do we need the Lord to do for us? What commitment can you take regarding hearing and retaining and persevering in God's word? Three minutes. Let's pray.